Let us all turn together to the Word of God. We're reading today from the Epistle to the Hebrews and the chapter 4. While you're turning up the place, uh, allow me to say I've been grateful for your prayers in this past week ministering in Dungannon, we sense the presence of the Lord. We are conscious of getting help from God in the, in the preaching of his word. And as always, I know that there are those who have had many burdens of heart to carry. But some of you have been remembering our meetings, I'm certain, in prayer, for God was answering prayer. And I may say a sincere Thank you at this time. It's it's Hebrews chapter 4 and reading at verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Just to make things abundantly clear, the reference is to people in Old Testament times. And the apostle is saying, for unto us was the gospel preached as well, as well as unto them. Verse 3, for we which have believed to enter into rest... As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now, Joshua in the Old Testament has an an incomparable name because his name in the Hebrew is the equivalent to the name of our Savior. And you can see that here where the names are brought together and Of course, this time round, we're reading about Joshua, verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. 
Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. But we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise the Lord for the reading of his word and for the preaching of it too. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 is our text in many ways this morning. Verse 12, the word of God is quick or living. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Over recent weeks, we've been thinking about the whole subject of God's precious word, God's wonderful word, God's word for our world. And we're going to think today very simply about five wonders of the word of God. How do we know that the Bible really is God's precious word? That's our subject for today and for the next number of Lord's days, God willing. Let's pray together and really pray that the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee once again for the privilege of prayer. We thank Thee, Lord, that the Word of God has been read publicly from this pulpit already. And we thank Thee for the Word of God in our hands. We thank Thee, Lord, that we can hear it read, we can read it for ourselves. But Lord, we acknowledge openly and we freely confess our need for the help of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth and to open our eyes and to open our hearts and to give us understanding and to give us willing hearts. We pray that the Son of God himself will stand at our side and that he will speak into our hearts and that, Father, thy word will have free course and be glorified, that thou will take away all distractions and all hindrances and all thoughts that would not bring us to thy feet. Lord, we pray that thou will put a hedge around about us, even now, and may we leave God's house this morning, having a renewed hunger and thirst for thy word and for the Savior that it presents. And we pray that thou will give us greater understanding 
And Lord, revive our hearts and quicken us according to thy word. And again, we pray that thou will give us a greater confidence in this book. Lord God, we pray that thou wilt, Lord, enable us to receive with meekness the engrafted word. And we pray that thou wilt be pleased to glorify thy Son, build up the saints of God, speak to the unconverted, and build thy church. Glorify thy Son, for it's in his precious and worthy name we pray. Amen. I suppose it's safe to say that in recent years in the evangelical church, many, I believe, unwisely have turned to the world and turned to celebrities to try to add emphasis to the Christian faith and to the Word of God. We are living in a day of celebrity culture. And even many evangelicals almost have the idea that it's a good thing to have celebrity endorsement with regards to the gospel, with regards to the Christian faith, and with regards to the Word of God. There's somehow this idea that if somebody famous or a celebrity embraces the Word of God or attaches themselves to the Christian faith or makes mention of the gospel or the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that somehow that adds greater weight and greater authority to the Christian gospel and to the Bible. And tragically, that mentality has often left the church of Jesus Christ with a red face. Beloved, this morning, the Word of God does not need celebrity endorsement. The Word of God, the Bible, endorses itself. And the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, makes the Christian faith authentic. It does not need endorsement from outside of itself. The authority of the Bible is not based on the testimony of man, but the authority of the Bible is based on the testimony of God and of God alone. Here in the, the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12, the Holy Spirit, the divine author of this book, says the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God is quick, living, and that separates this book from every other book on the face of this globe and the face of this planet. God has set apart the Holy Scriptures and the Spirit of God is declaring this book is a living book. It's not a dead letter. It's not merely a theological textbook. It's not merely the history of the Christian church or the history of the children of Israel. It's not merely a book of laws and it's not merely a book of principles for us to accept. This book is all of those things and more. This book the Word of God is a living book. It's a life-giving book. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Not only does this affect the intellect, not only does it reach our eyes and reach our ears as we read it and heard it read, but it gets deeper than that. It goes right into the very soul and right into the very spirit right into the inner man, this precious book that God has given 
is God's word for our world. And it's a living book. It is the living and eternal word of God. But why do we call this book the Bible? What does the word Bible actually mean? The word Bible comes from a Greek word, a Greek root word, and it simply means the book. The book. So whenever we open the scriptures, we're opening the book. We're opening the Word of God. We're opening God's Word. It might say in the front of your copy of Scripture, Holy Bible. The word holy means to sanctify and to set apart. So we might say that Holy Bible is reminding us every time we have it in our hands that this is a book that God has set apart. From every other book, it's a book that is sanctified, it is a book that is holy, it is a book that is set apart, the Holy Bible, the book that God has set apart from every other book. And then the word scriptures. What does the word scripture or the word scriptures mean? Well, again, the word scripture comes from a, a Greek word in our New Testament, graphe which literally means the written word. God has given us a book, and God's word has been written down. And we thought about that last Lord's Day. Holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And the Spirit of God enabled men that were set apart by God to write down the very word of God. And now we read that this book, this book set apart, this word written down is a living word, and it is also a very powerful word. And this morning, I just want to consider for a few moments some of the things that the Bible says about itself. We're going in the weeks that lie ahead to call some witnesses to testify as to the integrity of this book. We're going to think about some historical witnesses. And then we're going to think about some scientific witnesses. And then we're going to consider some prophetic witnesses. But this morning, we're just going to open the Scriptures for a few moments and consider some of the great things that the Bible says about itself. It does not need celebrity endorsement. It doesn't need endorsement from any human being. I trust today that we will come to discover that the Word of God stands alone. And it does not need us to exalt it or lift it up or to hold it up to try to add weight to it. The Word of God stands alone. It does not stand upon us, but rather we stand upon the integrity of God's precious Word. So our subject this morning is the wonder of the Word. And I want to give you five wonders concerning the Word of God this morning. We're not going to go outside Scripture. Just look at the Bible itself for a few moments. And will you consider, first of all, with me, the wonder of its testimony. The wonder of its testimony. Beloved, this morning, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Last Lord's Day, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture, the written Word, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So right there, Paul is saying the Scriptures 
are the Word of God. They have their origin in the heart of God. The Scriptures proceed from the mouth of God. They're inspired. The Bible testifies this is the Word of God. In fact, if you were to go into the Old Testament Scriptures and take that little phrase, thus saith the Lord, or various connotations of that phrase, maybe the Lord spake, or God said, or God spake unto, and you would go to the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, you've got 500 references or more to the fact that God spoke. Thus saith the Lord, God said, God spake, God said unto, appear 500 times approximately in the first five books of the Bible. And then 300 times those words appear in the historical books. And then 1,200 times in the prophetical books. And then if you take the likes of the Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the New Testament Gospels, the New Testament Epistles, you've got over 4,000 references in the Bible to the fact that God has spoken in this book. And therefore, the Word of God is testifying in and of itself. This is God's Word. This is the record of God's spoken Word. Now, I don't believe there's one other book on the face of this globe that addresses itself to the human conscience the way the Holy Bible does. It addresses itself to the heart and mind and intellect and conscience of humanity in a way that no other book does or has done, and certainly in a way that no other book ever will do. It self-authenticates itself. Just as you do not need me to prove to you today that there's a sun in the sky, whenever you go outside of these walls, and if there's no clouds, you'll see the sun, you'll see its light, you'll feel its heat. And the sun enables growth and life and development. And the sun does not need to try to prove its existence. Neither does God need to prove his existence. Neither do I believe the Bible has to prove its authenticity. I believe if we allow the Word of God to speak for itself, itself authenticates itself. It becomes obvious whenever you read the Bible, whenever you study the Bible, whenever you get into the Word of God and you read it consistently and you read it systematically, it becomes very, very clear, very, very evident that this book is different. This is a living book. It's a life-giving book. And as I read this book, God speaks to my heart in a way that he does not do in any other piece of literature upon the face of the earth. God said in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 3, And the Lord said, Let there be light. And immediately there was light. And it would have been very evident that there was light. In the darkness, the speaking voice of God brought light. And in the Word of God, God is imparting light and truth. And as you read it for yourself, as you sit under the reading of God's Word and the faithful preaching of God's Word, I believe it imparts light. 
And it becomes evident that this book is holy. This book is set apart. This book is different. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. And if it claims to be the Word of God in so many ways, hundreds and hundreds of times, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, why wouldn't it be the Word of God? Here's a book that we have. It claims to be God's Word. And the challenge is to every individual, if that is the case, this book claims to be God's Word, well, why would it not be God's Word? In the courts of this land, a defendant has the right to speak for themselves and to defend themselves and to prove their innocence. And we often have the the terminology that somebody is innocent until proven guilty. And if the Bible claims to be the Word of God, then it stands to reason that people should be able to prove otherwise if it's not the Word of God. And therefore, it's important to let the Bible speak for itself. See, it Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, was once asked by a well-meaning Christian to join a certain organization that was set to defend the integrity of the Bible. Now, that sounds like a very legitimate organization, and I'm sure in many ways it was. But what Mr. Spurgeon said, he says, I wouldn't dream of trying to defend the Bible. He says, I've never seen a man stand before a caged lion with a sword in his hand to try to defend it. He says, the best way to defend that lion is to open the gates of the cage and let it out. And it's big enough and bold enough and strong enough to defend itself. He says, I don't need to stand in front of the Bible and try to defend the Bible. I just let the Bible speak. I let the Word of God out. I let the Word of God of free course and be glorified. God's Word, you see, is a consuming fire. And we don't really need to try to defend it or apologize for it or authenticate it. Let it speak for itself. The Word of God is big enough and strong enough and powerful enough. It speaks for itself. Let the Bible speak. And the Bible has been speaking for thousands of years now. And nobody has ever been able to discredit or disprove this Bible. They've tried to dilute it. They've tried to deny it. They've tried to destroy it. They've tried to defile it. But still, we have the Bible. Now, if somebody said to you, prove that Abraham Lincoln was an American, how would you do that? He's gone. He's passed away. But you would correlate the evidence. You'd maybe get the records of his birth, his birth certificate, his father and mother, his family genealogy. You'd maybe get some of his own writings and some of his own testimony. You'd maybe correlate people that knew him and and spoke with him. You'd maybe get his his papers and his, his institutional vows whenever he was inaugurated as the president, and you'd collect the evidence. You'd correlate the evidence. You'd compare the evidence, and then you'd reach a conclusion. And I'm sure you would discover that, yes, Abraham Lincoln was exactly who he says he was. He was an American by birth and by family. And because he was instituted as president, he had the confidence of the American people that he was, in fact, an American. And whenever we get the Word of God, 
and we collect and correlate all of the evidence and we compare it and we bring it together, we have to reach the conclusion that this book is God's Word. And the testimony that the Bible gives of itself certainly is a true testimony. You cannot fail to accept the Word of God whenever you're absolutely honest with it. The problem with humanity is not an intellectual problem. The problem with humanity is a spiritual problem, a volitional problem. You give the man in the street the Bible and say, go away and study that book. Read it from Genesis to Revelation. Compare book with book, chapter with chapter, verse with verse, and come back to me and tell me that that's not the Word of God. He might say, well, it isn't, but he'll not be able to prove it. His problem is in his heart. The fact of the matter is that mankind, this world of ours, does not want to accept the Bible as the Word of God. Because if we accept that the Bible is the Word of God, it changes absolutely everything. We see who we are because the Word of God is like a mirror. We see who God is because the Word of God is like a telescope and also like a microscope. And we see what God requires of us as His created beings. And for many people, that is just too much responsibility. They do not want to be held accountable, and that's why they don't read it. And even many professing Christians now are getting away from the Word of God because it renders them culpable and it renders them accountable. The Word of God's testimony, the wonder of its testimony. Then there's another wonder that I want you to consider about the Word of God, and that is the wonder of its unity. Think of this. 66 individual books, two separate testaments divided by a silent period of some 400 years, somewhere in the region of 40 different authors, thousands of subjects and texts and topics and doctrines, and yet all the while there's a diversity of style and scripture. Some of the Bible books are historical. Some of the Bible books are poetical. Some of the Bible books are doctrinal. Some of the Bible books are prophetical. Some of the Bible books are conversational. And yet all the while with the diversity of style, there's a unity of subject. Jesus Christ and his redeeming work is the center and the circumference of Scripture. And then there's also diversity with regards to location. You study the Bible and ask yourself the question, where was this book written? Well, some of this book was written in the nation of Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Some of it was written in Babylon. Some of it was written in Rome. Some of it was written in Asia Minor. Some of it was written in the Isle of Patmos and other places beside. And there's a diversity of style. There's a diversity of location. And then there's also a diversity of occasion. If you study the Bible and the time scale and it was written, it took over 1,600 years to write the Word of God down. Now, most books that reach the press and are put out there, they maybe take a few months or maybe a year or two at best to write and to compile. 
But the Word of God was written over a period of some 16 or 17 centuries. And so there's a diversity of occasion from Moses to David to Solomon, to the prophets, to the Apostle Paul, to the Apostle John. There's a diversity of authorship. The men that wrote the Word of God were all different men. Now, God could have allowed a book to fall from heaven into the lap of some great king, but God uses men. And all of the men that God used to write down the Word of God, they all wrote about the same God. Everything that they said about God was in agreement. Everything that they said about humanity was in agreement. Everything that they said about world history was in agreement. Everything that they said about sin was in agreement. Everything that they said prophetically looking forward was in agreement. Everything that they said regarding what God requires of man was in agreement. And everything that they said regarding God's way of salvation was in agreement. That's a remarkable thing. Some 40 different men from different occasions and locations and time periods, all writing in agreement about these great spiritual truths. Now, if you got five men or five women out of this con congregation, and you put them in a room together, and you ask them, what do you believe about morality? What do you believe about spirituality? What do you believe about history? What do you believe about God? X, Y, and Z, just five people, and give them five subjects to discuss, there would be a difference of opinion. But not whenever it comes to the Bible. And that shows us somehow that underneath it all, there's a supernatural unity. The Word of God is a testimony to its underlying author, the Holy Spirit, guiding and directing and bringing all of these people together in the spirit of unity. Richard Sibbs was an old Puritan, and he once said, God's truth always agrees with itself. Did you ever meet somebody who says, sure, the Bible is full of contradictions? I've met people like that, and sometimes I've had a Bible on my person. I said, is it? Here's the Bible. Show me these alleged contradictions. Oh, I just can't remember where they are. Well, okay, you can't remember where they are. Maybe you could enlighten me and tell me what they are. It's very difficult for them to do it because truth is always consistent. There's the wonder of its testimony, the wonder of its unity, and yes, thirdly, the wonder of its consistency. Consistency is one of the great characteristics of truth. You get somebody that is guilty of a crime, and they interview them, and they record the interview, and then they bring them back, and they interview them again, and then somebody else comes in from another perspective, and they cross-examine that person. It doesn't take all that long sometime before certain inconsistencies come out in that person's testimony. That's just one individual. You get three or four individuals all connected with the same crime, and you interview them, and you cross-examine them. Not only do they begin to contradict themselves, but they soon begin to contradict each other. I think I've given the illustration before about four young men that were traveling in the same car to university to do an exam, and they weren't prepared. They didn't want to do the exam, so they took the morning off 
to get themselves some more time to study. And whenever they came back the next week, the lecturer said in the university, why weren't you here last week for your exam? And one of them spoke up, the spokesman for the group said, oh, we, we, uh, we were coming and we got a flat tire. And the examiner says, well, that's okay. I'll take your word for it. You sit in this corner, you sit in this corner, you sit in this corner, you sit in this corner. He'd give out the examination papers. And the very first question he'd written down on pen, which tire was flat? And all of a sudden, they hadn't thought about that. And I'm not very good at mathematics, but if you multiply out the probabilities of them all guessing the same tire that was flat, very difficult for them to do that. And you think of all the subjects in the Word of God. And you think of all of the authors in the Word of God. And many of them had never met each other or talked together and said, what should we write down? And yet there's a beautiful sense of consistency. You know, I think it was Johnny Cash, the old country and western singer, and he said, lies have to be covered up, but truth can run around naked. You don't have to cover up the Bible. You can just give it out and let it run around, and it's absolutely consistent because it's true. There's a consistency of theme. The primary theme of the Bible is God's redemptive plan in the person of his own dear son. Therefore, the person and the work and the witness of Jesus Christ is the central theme in Scripture. And you'll discover the consistency of theme. Whenever the Savior spoke to the two discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He opened the Scriptures. He began at the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then in all the Old Testament prophets, he spoke unto them the things concerning himself. What a sermon that must have been. I would love to have heard even a little snippet of what the Lord said. But he was able to open the 39 books of the Old Testament and say, I'm the one that is speaking of. And whatever book he went to, he could bring out something concerning himself because there was a consistency of theme. There's no contradiction in the teaching and doctrines of God's Word. There's a consistency of theme. There's a consistency of the two Testaments. The Old Testament was completed 400 years before the commencement of the New Testament. And yet they fit together like a hand into a glove. The Old Testament is quoted directly 180 times in the New Testament. And it's alluded to and brought out many more times. Now, higher critics and modernists and liberalists will come and say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament God is harsh and austere and stern. The New Testament God is loving and gracious and sentimental. And they divide the Scriptures and they divide the very being of God Himself. But the Scriptures are consistent between Old Testament and New. St. Augustine once made the statement, the old, the old is by the new revealed, and the new is in the old concealed. They're there consistently together, hand in glove, Old Testament and New, and yet 400 silent years in between. Remarkable, the consistency of its theme, the consistency of its testament, the consistency of its symbolism. You think about the law of God, the civil law for the nation of Israel as they conducted their day-to-day -day business, the ceremonial law for the children of Israel as they met together to worship God, 
the moral law that God gave in the Ten Commandments that are universal in their application. And yet in the law of God, there's a wonderful sense of consistency. It all reveals the holiness and the heart of our great God. Take another theme like the Lamb. Genesis chapter 3, whenever God got Adam and Eve alone and he made coats of skins and it was pointing to blood atonement. And you go into the next chapter and you've got Cain and Abel and Abel brought the firstlings of his flock and there's the lamb. And again, it's blood atonement. You come to Genesis 22, God shall provide himself a lamb, blood atonement. Exodus 12, the Passover, blood atonement. Isaiah 53, blood atonement. John chapter 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. John 10, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And right throughout Scripture, you've got the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb, right through to Revelation. And there's a wonderful consistency of all of the great types in Scripture. What about the Levitical system? Some people look at the Old Testament and they come to Leviticus and they read about the, the offerings and they read about the feasts and they read about the sacrifices. And then you go to the book of Hebrews and you see the author of Hebrews unfolding and opening up so many windows and they, on the Levitical system, showing how it all ties together and has its culmination in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Study the tabernacle. The furnishings and the, 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 the furniture and the offerings and every little detail, the linen that speaks of his righteousness, the scarlet that speaks of his blood, the purple that speaks of his royalty, the silver that speaks of his redemption, the gold that speaks of his glory, the brass that speaks of the judgment upon the cross. And it's all pointing us to the Savior, whether it's the brazen altar or the laver or the altar of incense, or the table of showbread, or the great curtain, or the manure, the candlestick, or the ark of the covenant. It's all pointing to the Savior, and there's a beautiful consistency in Scripture. And it's a wonderful thing, the wonder of its testimony, the wonder of its unity, the wonder of its consistency. Then there's the wonder of its relevancy. I think it's safe to say that the Bible... It's probably the oldest book that is still available and still in print, and it's never been out of print. It's still the world's bestseller. And it's the world's bestseller for a reason, because it's so relevant. Before there was a Book of Mormon, before there was the Watchtower, before there was the Bhagavad Gita, before there was the Quran, there was the Holy Scriptures. And yet it is more up-to-date and more relevant and certainly more accurate than tomorrow's newspaper. The Word of God is relevant today. Voltaire was a Frenchman. He was an infidel, an atheist. He once famously said that there will come a day, either shortly before I die or shortly after I die, the only place you'll have an open Bible will be in a museum. Voltaire lived and died. And the very house that he had lived in for a season became a place where the Word of God was printed. I sometimes wonder, does God have a great sense of humor? I think he does. Richard Dawkins, a few years ago, put out a book called The God Delusion. But whenever Richard Dawkins is dead and gone and his books are no longer in print, the Bible, if the Lord hasn't come back, the Bible will still be the world's bestseller. 
Christopher Hitchens is dead and gone, but the Bible still stands. Jesus Christ said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. It's read this morning in Lisburn. It'll be read this morning in Los Angeles, Lebanon, Liberia. Any place in the world you'll go to, there'll be people somewhere reading the word of God. Why? Because the word of God is relevant. And every subject that you come to think about of any great importance, the Word of God, this book translated now into over 1,000 languages, is still relevant for this world. It's still the world's bestseller. It's read by kings and queens. It's read by paupers and presidents. It's read by scientists. It's read by schoolboys. It's read by young. It's read by old. It's read in every part of the world because it is so relevant. The answers to all my questions are found in the Bible. It answers all my questions. It gives wisdom for all of my decisions. It provides comfort in all of my trials. It gives direction for all of my needs. The Word of God satisfies us spiritually. The Word of God satisfies us intellectually. The Word of God satisfies us emotionally. In 1863, an artist by the name of Thomas Jones Barker was commissioned to paint a painting that was put up in the, the audience chamber at Windsor. It was called The Secret of England's Greatness. And it showed Queen Victoria on her throne passing a copy of the Word of God to a tribal chieftain who was on his knees before her throne. And she was saying, this book is the secret of England's greatness. It's sad that Britain is getting away from the Bible. It's sad that the British Empire no longer holds dear the truths of God's Word. The enemy has come in like a flood. We're living in days of moral and emotional and mental and political anarchy. And it's probably because we've got away from the Bible. It's the secret of England's greatness. Any man's greatness, any woman's greatness, any church's greatness, any town or nation's greatness is based upon the Word of God. One last thought and we're finished. What about the wonder of its inexhaustibility? This book is inexhaustible. Tens of thousands of other books have been written about this book. And we still haven't got to the bottom of it. Billions of sermons have been preached from the Bible. And still it is inexhaustible. Nobody has ever really plumbed its depths. Nobody has ever really scaled its heights. Nobody has ever exhausted its riches. This book today is a universe of truth, an eternal book written by an eternal God, a book of eternal worth, and you will never, never wear out the Bible. The Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. You can take a promise like Romans 8, 28. Millions before have claimed it and stood upon it and wept over it and prayed over it, but you can take it for your own and bring it before the throne of grace as if you're the only person that has ever seen it and claim it again. It's inexhaustible. You'll never, never wear it out. The Bible has freed nations. The Word of God has abolished slavery. The Bible has united families. 
The Bible has formed charities. The Bible has saved souls. The Bible has satisfied minds for many generations. Many of the great social reforms are based upon men who embraced the Word of God and wanted its truth to get out there. You'll never wear out the promises of God's Word. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. You say, is there a promise in the Bible for me? Yes, there is. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 6, 37. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You can claim those promises are inexhaustible. Is there somebody today that's backslidden? God says, I will heal your backslidings. I'll restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten. Is there a Christian today that's struggling? The Word of God says that His grace is sufficient. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Is there somebody today that's got a need? The Bible says, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The psalmist said, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. It's quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the book of life. It's also a book for life. What are you doing today with your Bible? Do you love God's Word? John Bunyan once said, I was never out of my Bible. May God write His Word upon our hearts this morning.